Open your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 1. The Red Pew Bibles in front of you are also ESV, so you can use those as well. Mark chapter 1, we'll be starting in verse 16, reading verses 16 through 20. Hear God's word. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. This is the time of year when high school seniors and college seniors are applying for either college or for jobs. And in the college application process, the students are the ones, the burden is on them to look good, to approach the right colleges, put their best foot forward, to have a good resume, to do well in the interview, to find the right school. Hopefully the school will let them in, hopefully they can study at that school. It's based on the student's merit. The school has no clue who these students are other than the paperwork that's submitted. But in this passage, Jesus' relationship with these disciples is the exact opposite. There's no merit on the part of the disciples. They do not approach Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the one who seeks them out. He's the one who knows them before this even begins. So far in the book of Mark, Mark has laid out for us who Jesus is. It's a sneak peek behind the curtain of what's going on in this narrative. He's the Messiah. Jesus is the second Elijah. Excuse me, John the Baptist was the second Elijah who prepared the way for Jesus. He's the Messiah to come. And Christ's ministry has just begun, as we saw in the sermon last week. The declaration that the kingdom of God is at hand is still ringing as we get to our passage. In our passage, there are two parallel call stories. First, Jesus comes to Simon and Andrew, and then he comes to James and John. And it's really striking how parallel these calls are. There are four elements, and they have the exact same elements in each story. First, Jesus sees them and approaches them. Same for both. And then, Mark tells us what they were doing. In both cases, they were, in some sense, related to the fishing world. And then the third thing that happens is Jesus calls them. And then the fourth thing Mark tells us is that they followed. It's a very simple outline, and it's repeated here in both stories. So that will be our general outline today, looking at, first of all, Christ's initiative, how he approaches them where they are as fishermen. We'll look at Jesus' initiative. Then we'll look at the call that Jesus gives to the disciples. And then we'll look at the disciples following the initiative, the call, and the following. So let's look at the initiative. This is from verse 16 and verses 19 and 20. What we see as Christ comes onto the scene, 
is that we have four men who are busy at work, busy with the things that they ought to be busy with. They, they're running a business. They're, um, they're working. They're getting enough money to support their families. They're preoccupied with the things that they know to do. Simon and Andrew, sounds like they had a startup business or a smaller operation. It doesn't, Mark doesn't indicate to us that they had a boat, but instead that they had these nets. And what's implied is they're actually circular nets where they were wading out in the water, casting the nets and then gathering them manually. So that's what seems to be going on with Simon and Andrew. Maybe this is a new uh, business venture. Maybe um, they, they have to have some kind of business smarts, however, because on the, on the Sea of Galilee, the fishing world was really competitive. There were hundreds of boats on the Sea of Galilee, and the fish um, market, uh, the market for fish, was, was a huge thing in that area. So they had to have a bit of business smarts. They were probably, uh, perhaps, we can speculate, they were aspiring to grow their business, but at this point, it's a small operation. James and John, on the other hand, are part of a long-standing, successful family business. They're with their dad, they have hired hands, they have their own boats, and James and John's job is simply to mend the nets. They're kind of like the... Uh, next in line, the sons of the owner of the company who are just waiting their time until they get to own the company, doing the easy stuff while the hired hands are doing all the hard work. That's kind of the impression we get, a little speculation there, but that's what the, the text seems to hint at. And we know how passionate Peter is. It says that Jesus first came to Simon and Andrew. Simon is the one called Peter. This is the, the Peter who denied, the famous Peter who denied Jesus three times. This is the Peter who was crucified uh, as well for the sake of Christ. We know how passionate he is. It wouldn't be too much of a stretch to say he was probably passionate about his business pursuits as well, seeing that he tends to be passionate about most things. James and John maybe didn't have a whole lot of vision. They were comfortable. They were pretty set. They knew that they were going to be heirs to the company. They just had to keep the thing afloat. And so they were probably seeking out just the maintenance of their lifestyle. Besides Andrew, who John tells us actually was a disciple of John the Baptist, besides Andrew, the, we don't really know that the other three had much of a religious resume. They probably heard the, the message from John the Baptist. They probably knew about Jesus of Nazareth, but they, weren't, they didn't study with the Pharisees. They didn't study under Gamaliel. They'd had no high pollutant reputation or, or resume in terms of religious studies. Yet Jesus initiates with these men. Jesus comes to these men where they are in their jobs, their ordinary day, and he meets them there. He shows himself to them there. And in so doing, he's laying the foundation of the church and he's saving these, these people. I wouldn't say that Simon and Andrew, James and John really felt the need for something to come in and change their lives. Yet here Jesus comes onto the scene and disturbs their generally needless situations. They seem to be doing fine. Yet Jesus calls them away from everything that they know. From a life of comfort, the hope of growing a business, and even from the family business. For these men, to leave is risky at best. It's definitely going to be disruptive, and it's probably going to be devastating to their prospect of worldly riches. Simon and Andrew's smaller operation would probably collapse entirely, since they seem to be the only ones involved, and Zebedee's fishing company could simply hire new laborers to replace James and John. 
And imagine how much of an insult that might be to the father to abandon his company at this point. Yet we see Jesus did not come to ruin their lives, to take them away from worldly success, just to mess things up. He came out of compassion for them. He came to bring them salvation. He didn't come to use them for his, mili- for his messianic kingdom. He came to bless them. He saw them. It's the first thing Mark tells us. He saw them and he knew them. Because from the, before the foundation of the world, God had chosen that these men were going to be the men who followed Jesus, who were going to be the disciples. Jesus saw them and knew them and approached them. This was out of compassion for them that Christ would invite them to know him and to follow him. And so doing, he's also building his church. Already at this point, the very first thing Jesus does after he proclaims that the kingdom of God is at hand, is he starts building his church by gathering ordinary working men. These men become apostles as well. They become the foundation of the church that we even have today. I would dare say Jesus probably had you and me in mind as he was calling those disciples, thinking these are the men who are going to lead Jesus' church, the authority through them, the apostolic authority by, on which we are founded. He thought about the well-being of you and me in calling these men because he knew he would call us. He knew that the church would be built on this apostolic authority. And so Jesus was compassionately seeking the growth of his people and his kingdom in calling these men. And it is strange that we don't get any indication that they had interest before Jesus comes to them. But that's not inconsistent with how God works with his people. Paul is quoting Isaiah when he says, I have been found by those who did not seek me. This is God speaking. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Our God has pursued people who really had no interest in him. We being those people. God has sought out sinners. And this is consistent with how Jesus came to earth. This was uh, prior, a couple weeks ago, we saw that Jesus came as a nobody to be like us, to know us, to meet us at this level when we were dead in darkness. And he decided to come in and know us, and show himself to us. And he's approaching ordinary, undeserving people. Has Jesus ever approached you in a situation where he didn't think you had need? And he called you to something else? Called you away from what seems to be the right thing to do? It's not wrong to have a business. It's not wrong to pursue um, you know, maintaining the family income. But when Jesus finds us where we are in our occupations and preoccupations, when we're pursuing worldly things, and when he calls us away from that to have a heavenly mindset, it's hardly ever convenient. Being a Christian is never supposed to be convenient. It's uncomfortable to let go of our grasp of wealth or stability if that's what God is calling us to do. It's uncomfortable to surrender what we think will keep us clothed and fed and warm. But it doesn't just have to be financial or work-related things that God calls us away from in order to follow him. Sometimes it's our relationship habits that we know are not consistent with how a Christian follows the Lord. Maybe it's physical habits. Maybe it's hobbies. Maybe it's addictions 
And in all these things, they don't have to be outright sinful in and of themselves in order to be distracting from following Jesus. And when Jesus calls us from them, we have to remember that he's doing it out of compassion. He does it out of compassion. He does it because he loves his children. And he promises that he's going to be with us. And he promises that he's going to feed us and clothe his children even more so than the lilies. So for those who don't know Christ, who are longing for answers, you can see God's character here. He comes to us. He has compassion. He sees us dead in our sins, pursuing things that do not glorify him. And he seeks his people. All the other religions in this world tell us that we need to climb the ladder up to him. Only here do we see God descending down to his people. The God of scripture, the God of Christianity humbled himself to meet us where we are. He does so in every church where the gospel is preached. Every time his word is opened, he's meeting his people here. And his spirit sweetly glides into the hearts of his people and grows us. And if you do know Christ, yet you feel beaten down, remember that the compassion that Christ shows you is the same compassion that he holds for you always. When he called you and now, He loves you. He gets you into the flock, but he's also the good shepherd who continually seeks your good, who feeds you, who leads you to shelter, who takes care of you. Our bond to our Savior is no weaker now because we feel weak, because he's the one who holds us. He's the one who comes to us, and he's the one who holds us. And if you do know Christ and your life is filled with blessings and you're drinking from the fountain of living water and you're eating the bread of life by gathering with the church through the truth that we find in God's word and through fellowship with the spirit, don't forget gratitude. Don't forget to give praise to the one who has given you these things from this compassionate Christ. He is the one who has brought us to this place. So that's Jesus' initiative. Praise God that he comes to us because we know that our pursuit of him is never enough. Second, we see the call. In both stories, Jesus calls the the people. He calls Simon and Andrew and then he calls James and John. Now, oftentimes when this passage is read or studied, people will compare Jesus' approach to his students like a rabbi in the first century and the rabbi students. Yet the rabbi situation was actually much more like a college application. Uh, It really seems to be the opposite of what Jesus is doing here. The best parallel for how Jesus comes to these disciples and reaches them actually comes from 1 Kings 19 when Elijah calls Elisha to follow him. This is the call to follow a prophet, the call to follow a person. And we've already seen in chapter one that Mark is driving home that Jesus is greater than a prophet, mightier than a prophet, greater than Elijah. And so what we see is Jesus is not calling them to be a student under another rabbi. He's not calling these men to a better business model that's gonna help them catch more fish, although he does help them at times with that. He's not calling them to a new system of religion where they need to follow the law better. He's not enlisting them for a messianic military regime. He's calling them to follow him, to know him, to be his companion. 
This is a call to the person of Jesus Christ, to know God himself. If anyone has seen Jesus, he has seen the Father, and these men were called by God to follow. And we know there are two kinds of call. There's the gospel call. When a pastor preaches the good news of Jesus and the call goes out, many might hear. And God uses that call to effectually call people, which is the second type of call. There's the gospel call where the the good news is proclaimed, and then there's the effectual call where the Spirit glides in and draws the hearts of those who hear the gospel call. Our passage here is showing an effectual call where Jesus is working on their hearts and drawing them. As we said before, Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. He brought Peter along to hear about this Messiah. He went to Peter and said, We have found the Messiah. Come see him. Peter knew who this Jesus was supposed to be. We can assume that James and John probably had a similar knowledge of who Jesus was. Yet that gospel call did not convince them to follow him. Yet here, Jesus, by the authority that he had, the power of the Spirit, he effectually drew them. This was the moment when they sold everything they had and bought the field with the treasure of immeasurable worth. This is the moment they dropped everything they had because nothing else mattered. They saw the beauty of Christ. And this is a miracle. The book of Mark is full of miracles. We're going to see miracle after miracle, raising the dead, healing the sick. This passage is no exception. How can hearts of stone be turned into hearts of flesh if not by a miracle of God himself? Ezekiel 36 talks about how God makes hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Every conversion, every time somebody turns to follow Jesus, it is a miracle. Because we know our condition, we know his initiative, God at work. Do you remember the moment that the Spirit showed you that Jesus is all that matters? Let's not forget that sweet moment when the Spirit sweetly glides into our hearts and draws us to see and love Jesus. He calls these men to be fishers of men. It's strange language, but it does pit their new job against their old job. You were fishers of fish, now you're fishers of men. Anytime in the Old Testament that a man is caught with fish hooks, and it happens quite a bit in the Old Testament in prophetic language, uh, it's always a prophecy of judgment. You don't want to be caught with a fish hook. In the book of Mark so far, we have expectations of judgment. The second Elijah comes right before God's return and before the judgment. Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. John the Baptist says repent. You've got to repent because the kingdom of God is coming and judgment is imminent. So if judgment is imminent, to be called to fish men is to save them from that judgment. Simon, Andrew, James, and John are being called to rescue men from judgment. The waters of chaos and destruction overwhelm and are about to devour, but Jesus says we are going to catch men. And and even this is not Simon's job, Andrew's job, James' job, or John's job. What does Jesus say in verse 17? Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Who's doing the work here? Once again, it's, it's Jesus. Once again, it's our God who says, the job that I'm calling you to, I am going to make you become able to do. He is the one at work. He is the one who's going to teach them and grow them. He is patient with them. And this is the work of evangelism. 
and it accompanies a life that responds to Jesus and grows in sanctification. All believers can be fishers of men because as we grow to know Christ more and more, the watching world sees a life that is either consistent or inconsistent with our message. And when the world sees that, they, be, they see the hope of rescue from judgment because they see Jesus Christ. As Jesus called them to be fishers of men, he also had a special understanding of what the church would be founded on with the apostolic authority. And so these men became four of the apostles on which Christ built his church. I knew a man in Massachusetts who had been a very successful businessman in North Carolina. He had climbed the ranks, making way more money than anybody should at 30 years old, living quite a comfortable lifestyle in the warm climate of suburban North Carolina. There's nothing wrong. He doesn't have any needs in this moment. Yet Jesus interrupted his comfortable lifestyle by various means, God called him to do something that by worldly standards makes no sense. Give up your money-making job. Move to the north, the north shore of, Bo of Boston, the north side of Massachusetts, to the cold, dirty, old northern suburbs. And preach the gospel in a place that is 97% unchurched and very antagonistic toward the gospel. He and his wife moved there with their kids. They bought an old house that was much less comfortable than their house in North Carolina. And they planted a church. And this man was my pastor for three years while I was in seminary. And in his willingness to follow God's call, he gave up much of what the world longs for, turning from his preoccupation with his kingdom to occupy himself with the things of God's kingdom. We examine our lives. Some are called to be ministers. And I don't want for one second to say that that's so rare that nobody in here is being called to ministry. There might be people in here for whom God is knocking on their hearts, calling them to be fishers of men in a life of ministry. But there's also a call to all believers to be fishers of men by growing in sanctification, by growing in likeness to Christ, and by letting the world see that. This too is how Christ meets his people where they are. By their neighbors by their coworkers, by the way that we treat the world. So we get to be a part of fishing as well. And lastly, let's look at the following. We have the initiative, Jesus initiates. We have the call, Jesus calls. And here we have the following. <clears throat> These four men likely, as we said, knew enough about Jesus' message and his identity and his claims to be the Messiah. But the way that Mark tells the story here he doesn't tell us those details. He intentionally excludes them because what he's emphasizing is that it's Jesus' messianic authority and it's his authority alone that can cause someone to follow. It's not your, your hopeful aspirations. It's not your good intentions. It is Jesus himself who draws people to follow. And he called them to be a part of this heavenly kingdom. If the initiation is God's work, and if the call is God's work, I dare say the following is also God's work. If God planned salvation for his people from all eternity, and if he knew his people before the foundation of the world, and if he approaches his people where they are to effectually draw them into relationship with him, then why would we expect 
that he stops working here and the rest is up to us. He works. Even the following is enabled by Christ's presence with believers. And yes, we are willing participants. But it's only by God's grace that frees us to do so. Again, when his spirit glides into our hearts, he persuades us to follow, shows us the beauty of Christ, kills our attachment to the world, to death, and he raises us to life. And even in the Great Commission, when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, go be fishers of men, he even says, I will be with you always to the end of the age. This cannot be done without Christ's presence and without Christ's work. I think it's important for us to note that following leads to understanding. So many times we think, I need to get every single detail intellectually lined up in order for me to follow Jesus. We come up with excuses, roadblocks that we put in the way. But we see here, these men don't know everything about Jesus, but they know enough about Jesus to follow him. I think of a child, a little child who knows enough about his mom to trust her and to run to her when things are difficult. Yet we couldn't say that that child knows everything about her mom. And so we also, we know enough about who Jesus is. He's made it clear. He made it clear to his disciples and he's made it clear and plain to you and me and we follow. Trusting that when we trust this God, we will then understand. Faith leads to understanding. We see here, it takes eight chapters for Peter to say, you are the Christ. And it takes many more years for him to grasp it to the point that he's willing to die for it. He grew along the whole way. For you and me to follow Jesus means that we're going to learn from Jesus. We're gonna, we're gonna, he's going to teach us along the way. As he did the disciples throughout the book of Mark, they heard Jesus teach. That's the very next paragraph. That's next week's sermon. He went into the synagogue and started teaching. These disciples are hearing him teach. They're growing. They're learning. That's what we do as followers of Jesus. You and I get to grow and learn and hear Jesus teach through his word. They're hearing sermons. They're reading God's word. And as we gather right now, this is a part of following Jesus. Be encouraged that this is the means that God uses to help us understand more about who Jesus is as we follow him. The disciples also witnessed Jesus saving work. And we get to do the same thing. We see the crucifixion. We hear about it in scripture and we place our trust in him alone. His righteousness is given to us and he conquers the enemy on our behalf. And we also get to live alongside Jesus and the other disciples. The disciples lived with Jesus for years. They traveled together. They ate together. They talked to the Pharisees together. They talked to the crowds together. They fed the crowds together. They did life together. And as we follow Jesus, he has given us the other disciples to do this with. We have the church. We have the community of saints who in Jesus and by the power of the Spirit are united. We talk about God. We welcome each other into our homes. We encourage each other. We comfort one another. This is what following Jesus looks like. And at some point we enter into new life when we trust Jesus Christ and place our life in his hands. That's what uh, baptism signifies, entering into the covenant community of God's gracious work, which then comes to fruition when faith is received. And then we eat with Jesus and the disciples at the table of communion, which we'll get to do here in a little bit. 
These are all part of following Jesus like the disciples did. And we become like Christ. And as we become like Christ, I mentioned before, our sanctification, the world sees that. They see us growing. They see us changing. They see that our message either affirms, excuse me, the way we live either affirms the message of Jesus or denies the message of Jesus. But, you know, to follow Jesus also means to suffer. They walked with Jesus and did not at times have a place to lay their heads. Many died for the sake of Jesus. They were mocked. They were ridiculed. Were you not also with that man? The words Peter heard, he denied them because he didn't want to be marginalized. He didn't want to be threatened by the religious authorities. And he didn't want to be killed as a criminal. Yet the Lord sustained him through that. And in the end, when we're finished following Jesus, which we really never do finish, but when we're finished on this earth, we receive heavenly benefits. And we have some of those benefits now. We have Christ as a mediator as we follow him now. He's always an advocate for us. He always cares how you're doing. We have his presence with us by his spirit, a loving, compassionate aid always. We have hope that we will finish the race even when we are weak because Christ will carry us in his strength. And we have grace upon grace when we fail by the patience of a loving Father. And we have the work of the Spirit that makes us holier and holier. And we have treasures laid up for us in heaven by God's abundance. So as we see Jesus initiate and call and help us to follow him, let's follow him. That's our job. Worldly wisdom and our fleshly desires will tell us that it's foolish to give up so much time and money and energy and other things to, to know an imaginary friend. But we know who he is. He's shown himself to us. We trust him enough to lean on him and to know that we will grow in our understanding of him more and more. We seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and that glorifies the loving, compassionate creator who loved us first. He's given us identity. He's given us hope. So let's keep following Christ together, brothers and sisters. Let's spur one another on to good works. Let's die to ourselves and to our sins again today. And let's know the deepest heart of compassion from our Savior who has given himself that we might know the Father.